I don't know if you realize this, but every Sunday morning, the trays for communion, the bread and the, and the grape juice that's put into the little cups, is lovingly prepared. Jackie's in here every Sunday early as the worship team's rolling in and plugging in and getting our heads together. And she's in the back there with Katie and they're, and they're lovingly preparing for us to take communion every week. And I thought about the fact that Jesus said, A body you have prepared for me. And when you draw back and you realize that God was preparing for, for our salvation before we were born, even before creation happened, because the Bible calls Jesus the Lamb who was slain from the foundations of the earth. So God had this whole thing in preparation ahead of time, and what we are part of here is the outworking of God's plan. We are, you are engaged right now in a plan that started before the first word of creation was spoken. A plan that was prepared and readied and set to go. And what we see happening, even in the world today, is all heading to one final climax, one fantastic conclusion. And God knew all along what He was going to do and how He was going to do it. This is not a series of random events whereby God is trying to fix things as they fall apart, you know. It's not like the old cartoons of the of the animal on the floor, it's kind of the Tom and Jerry thing, where Jerry's up knocking the plates off of the shelf, and Tom's trying to grab each one before they break. That, that's not God. That's not the reality. The reality is God had this all worked out. And there is such a great peace in knowing that and an understanding that we're part of something far bigger than us that's been going on a long time, but... And listen to me on this. We are in a unique place in that plan. You are this morning in an incredibly significant and unique place. And I want to talk about that a little bit more. We're going to be still in the book of Job, where I imagine we're going to be for a few more weeks. Chapter 7. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 7. This morning, just two verses out of Job that I want to look at, and then several passages throughout the rest of Scripture. I knew this conversation that we're going to have this morning would take place at some point in our study through Job because a question was raised to me a few weeks back regarding this very thing. Job chapter 7, verse 9. Job, still speaking out of his misery, out of his pain, says, When a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So is he who goes down to Sheol, does not come up. He will not return again to his house, nor will his place know him anymore. Let me just read that one more time to you. When a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He will not return again to his house, nor will his place know him anymore. Would you pray with me? Father, there are many perspectives that people have on death. Ironically, those of us alive have not experienced death, and so, therefore, we don't know for certain other, Father, than what you tell us, or what people guess about it. This morning, Father, I pray that you will open our eyes to the great truth mystery, Father, at one time that is no longer a mystery, but completely revealed, set out, laid out before us that we might know in Scripture. 
Not only where we are in this life, but where we will be in death. I pray, Father, for both this service and the next, that if anybody is sitting here who is not assured of their salvation, of their life after death, I pray this morning will be the time when that decision is made, when there is understanding and an acceptance of Jesus, so that the fear of death, the things misunderstood about death, would fall away in light of a new faith. I pray, Father, for those who have studied this and thought through this and considered what Your Word has to say about this. I pray they will be uh, shored up in their understanding, even as I was this past week. Father, we need to be rekindled and reminded of the things that You've already taught us. And so I pray that for some, though this may be refresher, that it will be, Father, refreshing. And God, we love You. We thank You for Your Word. Speak to us now by Your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Job, we've dealt with several great things already. This is one of those books that is just chock full of big life questions and answers. Big life themes that we can look at. And if you think over just the last three weeks, we've looked at the issue of repentance. Big issue in our lives. We've looked at the issue of suffering. Another huge reality that we face. Last week we talked about friendship and relationships. And all of these spoken to so clearly and and effectively in the book of Job. This morning we come to another one of those great issues that Job grapples with. And Job calls it, ironically, the house of meeting. What we see, we have a, a meeting house here, a place we come together. Well, Job says there's another house of meeting for all living, and he's talking about death. Since the early days of man's existence, death has been part of the deal. Genesis 3.19, the Lord said to Adam, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Paul explains that to us. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. So we have this reality that we have to deal with, this sorrowful, difficult, frightening often, misunderstood reality called death. And Job in chapter 30 verse 23 says, I know that you will bring me to death and to the house of meeting for all living. That's death. Death is the house of meeting for all living. It's where we are all headed. And yet, there are a few things that people fear more than death. People don't want to talk about it. You know, when people come in and say, you know, we need to start considering um, what's going to happen if if I die. You know, this is a conversation I refuse to have with my in-laws. You know, and and there have been a few moments where Bill or Sharon have come over and Bill said, listen, I just want to, you know, after I'm gone, I'm like, Bill, let's not go there. Jesus is coming before you're gone. So we don't have to worry about it. So, So even me, and I know what's coming. But we just we, we fear this conversation. And, and again, it's one of those things that seem to be most feared by people. There's only one thing I've ever heard of, actually, that people fear more than death. Jerry Seinfeld said, according to most studies, people's number one fear is public speaking. <laughs> he says, death is second. Does that sound right? This means to the average person, if you have to go to a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. <laughs> I love that. 
But for the certainty of death and the reality of it, people tend to ignore our mortality. We go flying through life at mock speed, trying to ignore, trying to fill up the hours, looking for ways even to soften the harsh reality. Have you noticed what we do to make death sound pleasant and peaceful? What do the names Maple Leaf, Pleasant Ridge, and Fern Hill have in common? (laughs) They're all cemeteries. And what's funny to me, I was thinking about this, you'd never hear of a a cemetery called something like Dead Leaf Cemetery. We just don't name it that. Decaying Ridge would be a nice one. How about Cadaver Hill? Now some might say, Rick, you cannot talk about cemeteries like that. Of course I can. Sorry, we should bury these jokes and move on. Hey, listen, death is as much a part of living as living itself. It is just a reality that we have to deal with. Yes, it is sorrowful. Yes, it is difficult, especially for the living, because we lose those who have gone on before us. And that hurts. That's difficult. But we've got to face it and understand, especially what the Word has to say about it. It's an inescapable reality. You know, you go out I-20 to catch dinner in a movie, and then your eye catches a wreath on the side of the road. And you know for someone there is great sorrow there. Someone has died. You turn on the TV at the end of a hard day and the death toll on the local news, the international scene, is just astounding. Whether it's from war or natural disaster, last week, Port-au-Prince, Haiti, workers are carving out mass graves on a hillside north of Haiti's capital using earth movers to bury 10,000 earthquake victims in a single day. Now let me lay that harsh reality out before you once again. What's happening in Haiti... 7.0 earthquake, tragic, we need to send help, we need to send a team, we need to send money, but then we get on about our lives. This article in the AP blew my mind. The death toll is currently estimated at 200,000 people in an instant. 80,000 are currently buried in mass graves. That's overwhelming. Remember how upset we were as a nation, our big, vast nation of America, how upset we were when 3,000 were lost in a day. Well, they're burying 10,000 every day. And the only way to do it is with earth movers. I mean, how do you conceive of that? It's overwhelming, but no less overwhelming is losing someone you love. And that moment where you face death up close and personal. But again, it's the house of meeting for all the living. The inevitable, inexorable, unavoidable, inescapable guarantee of death. So I'd like us to face death this morning. I'd like to take a hard look at it with two perspectives. An eternal perspective and an immediate perspective. First, the eternal perspective. What happens when we die? Now, a lot of you believers, you Christians, you know this. You have a a sense of this, a concept, an idea of this, but it still amazes me how often I'm asked the question by long-term believers, what does the Bible really say about when we die? And at first, Job himself, he glamorizes death. He holds it up and and says, only if, if I had only died at birth, you know, wouldn't have to deal with this life. He says in Job 3.13, For now I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept then. I would have been at rest. Really, Job? Are you sure? As we talked about studying that chapter, that spawns the ever-popular idea of soul sleep. The whole rest in peace on on the gravestone. Oh, you die and you just sleep. Peaceful. 
quiet. I read a story years ago. I believe it was in a Max Lucado book about a man who had committed suicide. And the way he did it was he crawled into a sleeping bag, zipped it up over him. He asphyxiated himself. But the note said, I just, I just wanted to sleep. I just wanted rest. Job is wrong in assuming that death is a peaceful dirt nap. <laughs> People have this romanticized view of death. I, I will ice it and look out at the tree where we buried old Herman. He would have liked that, to be buried there under the tree. Herman says, my body decays, my elements will go back into the ground and up into the tree. And I'll be part of the growth of that great oak. And of course, the spring comes and the acorns begin to show up on the oak and you can look and say, oh look, there he is. (laughs) There's old Herman. He looks good, doesn't he? Hanging there. And then the fall comes and the acorns drop off. There goes Herman. And, And you're watching when suddenly a squirrel from nowhere comes scampering along and grabs one of those acorns and eats it. There goes Herman. And you know biologically what's going to happen in two or three hours. And that's the end of Herman's life. Job began thinking death would bring peace and rest. You just go into the ground and there you stay. (laughs) The Lord says to Job, have, have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen this, Job? And when we get to the questions of the Lord at the end of this book, we're going to have a good time because the Lord really, and the sarcasm, it just drips off of almost every question. Have you been there, Job? <laughs> have you seen death? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness, Job 38, verse 17? The implication from God to Job and from Him to us as well is don't make assumptions about what you do not know. Don't presume upon God in eternity when you don't know for sure what's coming, what's going to happen. little hint, we do know. But not because we've figured it out, not because we've romanticized it, not because we've written poems about it or tried to make it prettier than we, we fear it may be. No, we know because God has told us. He has revealed to us, and we'll get there in a moment. But as the dialogue in Job continues, Job still longs for death just to put him out of his misery. But (laughs) That's good. I need death to put me out of my ministry. No, I don't. He he says, I just want to die. I just don't want to hurt anymore. Maybe you've been there. I'm just tired of the hurting. But the more he seriously considers death, the more serious death becomes to Job. The book of Job mentions death or dying some 35 different times. Ironically, albeit poetically, it even ends with this verse, Job 42.17, So Job died. (laughs) That's how it ends. Old and full of days. For all his fearing death and considering death and wishing he could die, eventually he does. Now it's going to be after God restores and blesses and brings great meaning and purpose back to his life along with understanding. But the book ends that way. What Job ponders and grapples with ultimately is the conclusion he comes to the house of meeting for all the living. Death. But listen, if we for good reason maintain the book of Job is the oldest book in the Hebrew Scriptures, then Job is the first one to specifically give the location of death a name. 
verse 9. When a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So he goes down to Sheol. He who goes down to Sheol does not come up. Sheol, it's the first time we see the word in Scripture. Well, actually, we'll see it in Genesis. In Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Moses uses the word Sheol. But if we maintain, as I believe, the book of Job is older than Torah, then Job is the first one to name death. Calling it Sheol, the place of the dead. The root word of this is interesting. It's Sha'al in the Hebrew. And it literally means to be hollow or or deepened. But this is what caught my eye. It's often translated not hollow or deepened. It's often translated ask. Sha'al means to ask. To ask? Why does Sheol come from the root word to ask? Because the place of death is always asking for the living. Death is always asking for for those who are alive to enter in. Isaiah 5.14 tells us, Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure, and Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her den of revelry, and the jubilant within her descend into it. Death is asking for us. With open mouth, death has an insatiable appetite. And so, Job struggles with the idea that once you've gone down, there is no coming back. This righteous man, early in the history of man, is clearly confused about death. All he understands at this point is, man, when you die, you're gone. And his example for that is that nobody's come back to tell him otherwise. When you die, you're gone. You don't come back. We can't have conversation about it. We can't find out what really happens after we die. Now, many people are confused about death. Surprisingly, a large number of Christians are confused about death. I myself, a few years back, would have been in that category. Asked, what happens when you die? Well, you, you go to be with Jesus. Okay, well, how? I, I, just, I, I think, don't you? Somebody have a Bible around here? What happens? What, you know? Have you been in those conversations where someone wants to know, and, and ooh, I, I, I know we go to heaven. Well, how does that work? I don't know. <laughs> well, the Bible tells us exactly how. The Bible explains it Literally, completely, that we don't have to be in the dark about the place of the dark. We don't have to be in the dark about death. Verse 10, Job goes on and he says, He will not return again to his house, nor will his place know him anymore. The word house there. Spencer, we had a conversation about this uh, Wednesday night. The word house in the Hebrew is bait. It's the same word used for the temple. So this man will not return to his temple. He will not come back to the place of his house. And it, it by extension can mean family. The house of Jacob was the bayit of Jacob. The temple, the, the house of the Lord, the bayit of the Lord. Well, the Bible also tells us our bodies are our, our temples. So is he saying that he will never return to his body? Is he saying he will never return to the house in which he was then living? That he would never return to the temple? We don't know exactly what he's saying. Well, Job wouldn't have said he'd never return to the temple because it wasn't built yet. But the Bible tells us our body is a temple and there is something of this confusion. So when we die, what happens with our body? That was the question that was raised to me, by the way. I understand that we die and, and, I, and our spirit goes to be with the Lord, but does our body... So, so we're disembodied? That was the word that was used. Are we disembodied? The same question that the person was asking, she said she'd asked a couple of other pastors, and the word just freaked them out. And they had no answer for her. Are we disembodied? And to think about that, it's, it's kind of a spooky word. 
the reality is, yes, we are. I mean, taken literally, yes. Spirit and body separate at the point of death. But Job is saying once you leave the body, you ain't coming back. Once you die, that's it. Houdini. Harry Houdini, the great magician, escape artist, you recall him. Every year on October 31st, which is the anniversary of his birthday, every year, do you know even today people gather at his grave to see if he'll come back? Because Houdini claimed 50 years after I die, I will escape from the grave. So... October 31st, 1976, a group of his followers were surrounding his grave 50 years to the day of his death. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and Houdini did not escape. He didn't come back. Well, is Job right then? That Sheol opens its mouth wide and swallows up and you never return? Or, or was perhaps the woman of Tekoa right? The woman of Tekoa? You Bible students may recall... David's son, Absalom, had committed a murder of vengeance against David's oldest son, Amnon, who had raped Absalom's sister. It's a big, dysfunctional, messy family. And Joab, who is David's commander, is worried about the king because David has sunk into a deep depression. Amnon is dead. Absalom is banished, fled the kingdom. And so David is just, he's in the throes of depression, losing losing really both sons at the same time. So Joab sent for a wise woman, a woman who was from his hometown, a place called Tekoa, to see if she could come in and help David out of this, maybe get David to restore Absalom, and pull him out of his depression. So the woman comes and she begins talking with David. It's a fascinating story. It happens in 2 Samuel 14. Listen to what she says, though. It's interesting. She said, We will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet... God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. That is great news. What a wise thing to say. And there's truth in that. Yes, we are like water that spills on the ground and cannot be gathered up again in and of ourselves. That's it. Death is the end. But but God has made a way. He plans ways so the banished one will not be cast out from him. Now she's trying to see... Get David to see Absalom that way. Bring Absalom back. You know, he's banished. There's a way. There's a way to do this. God does that with death. And truly, God does. If we were up, if it was up to our own power, yes, we would sink into the ground and that would be it. But it's not up to our own power. It is up to the power of God. God has made a way. Psalm 68.20 God is to us a God of deliverances. And to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Are you an escapist, Rick? Yeah. You bet I am. I'm not an escape artist because I don't really have the skill for that. But I do believe that God provides an escape from the open-throated grave of death. So, the question again, do we return to our houses? You bet we do. To these houses. Yes, we do. Let's be absolutely clear. I want to show you a few verses you may be familiar with, you may not. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. These would be great. I'm going to give you three passages here. We'll look at them quickly together. It would be great for you just to note these in your Bible. Maybe even in the back. Just write death and write these three passages down. So that when someone comes to you confused or concerned and you're you're not sure you can remember exactly what the Word says, you need a little help with that, you'll have it right there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
verses 1 through 9. If you follow along while I read this to you. Paul says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we're in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up, watch this, not by death, swallowed up by life. Now, He who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. Note that. When you're at home in the body, you're absent from the Lord. Oh, the Lord dwells within you if you have received Jesus as your Lord. His Spirit is, is in your heart, in your spirit. His Father and Son, Jesus said, will we'll abide with you, but we're yet absent in reality from God. We are not fully in it. We sing, in your presence is where I belong. In your presence, it's where I want to be. It's where I belong. But we're not fully in His presence. It's kind of the tension of our Christian walk, isn't it? As much as we desire it and have those moments of worship where we feel very close to the Lord, we know we still have a distance from Him as long as we are at home in the body. We are absent from the Lord, Paul says. For we walk by faith, not by sight. And he says, so we're good, of good courage, verse 8. I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Do you ever just wish you were absent from your body? <laughs> you know, after you've had the third twinkie and you go, oh, why do I do this to myself? I just want to be out of here. If you're absent from the body, you are at home with the Lord. Right there. Soul sleep is not a reality. When you die and your body is buried or cremated or whatever happens to it, your soul isn't stuck there. You know, trying to get out. Sleeping. It's not how it works. When you're absent from the body, you are present with the Lord. If, listen to me, if you die in Christ Jesus. If you die in faith in Jesus. Therefore, Paul says, verse 9, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. So if I'm going to live my life, I want to live it for Him. If I'm going to die, I want to be with Him. Either way, it's for Him. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the second of three verses I want you to pay attention to, jot down, know well. Rick, I've heard you talk about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 many times. And you will hear me talk about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 many times again. It's one of the four times in the Scriptures where Paul says, and I quote in verse 13, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Wait a minute, Rick, it says asleep, so doesn't that say when people die they're asleep? No, it is a euphemism. Very well understood, clearly understood because of what Paul is about to describe, that when you die you don't actually sleep. It's just a euphemism. It's, it's a, a word used to express some sense of comfort. You are at, at rest one way, of course not the other. We don't want you to be uninformed, Paul says. He says, verse 14, and watch this closely now. 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Two things to note about this. Paul says, even so. He says, if we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so. The even so tells us what he just said about Jesus is the picture for all of us. What happened to Jesus, if we die in faith in Jesus, is what will happen to us. What happened to Jesus? What happened to Him after He died? He rose from the dead. How? Was He a spirit bobbing around that the apostles you know, could go like that and He'd disappear and then reform? Was He vaporous? How did Jesus appear to the apostles? In the body. In the physical body. He ate fish in front of them, showing them, it's Me. He said, Thomas, here, touch. Put your fingers in the holes and in, 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 in My side here. I am tangible, I am real, I am in the body. The body glorified, but in the body. Jesus' resurrection is the picture for you and for me of of our resurrection. Of our body and spirit raised. Now, stay with me on this. Even so, so Jesus is the picture. He says, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. What does that tell you? It, It says if you die in Jesus, that your spirit is with the Lord. Now Paul already said that, 2 Corinthians 5. When I, you know, if I'm absent from the body, I'm present with the Lord. So your spirit is with God. That's the only way God could bring with Him those who have fallen asleep, right? Because if they weren't with God, if they were in the grave, He'd have to go get them. And then raise them up. It says He will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. The spirit is with the Lord. Verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that, and, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So if you die before the rapture comes, here's the good news. You get to be raised before those who are raptured. You go first. That's kind of the blessing you get. Personally, I'm fine with you all going first. I am waiting for the rapture. But he says... He says in verse 16, and you need to note this carefully, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Contradiction. If the Lord is bringing with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, then why are the dead going to rise? Because the dead speaks of literally the word is necros, bodies, corpses. The corpse will rise. The Spirit, the Lord brings with Him in that instant, in that moment. And body and spirit of all those who have died are put together and glorified instantaneously. I mean, it's very clear. I'm not making this stuff up. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And Paul says, therefore comfort one another with these words, which is why I come back to this passage again and again. This is our comfort. As you are walking in faith in Jesus Christ, as you're living the Christian life, your comfort comes from knowing no matter what happens here, I know where I'm going there. Whether I die or I'm I'm alive when Jesus comes, I know what's happening. Paul lays it out for us that we might not be confused. Go back to 1 Corinthians now. 1 Corinthians just had left in your Bibles. And when you get to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, stop there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. The third of these three passages to look at. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. 
Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Okay, now I'm getting confused because, okay, I get this. We die, body goes into the grave, spirit goes to the Lord. And then he comes back, brings the spirit, body raised, puts them together, but Paul right here says that the perishable can't inherit the imperishable. So I've got this body, and by the way, I'm a little bummed out that my body's going to be raised up and I'm stuck with this thing. (laughs) So what does this mean? Behold, Paul says, verse 51, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. The necros gang will be raised imperishable. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. The body gang, the body, will be glorified. So the body that you look at in the mirror today that is far from glory will be glorified. And I can guarantee you that there's not going to be a single person with the Lord in eternity looking at their body and going, I was so hopeful. I mean, do they have God's gym up here? Can I go to that? No, the perishable will put on the imperishable. Verse 53, the mortal must put on immortality. Verse 54, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That's the eternal perspective. That we know we're going to be changed. That no matter what our bodies, what shape they're in today... They will be changed and glorified. Our spirit reunited with the body if we have died in Christ. And if we haven't died in Christ, if we're alive when He comes, well, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let me ask another question. What about those who die outside of Christ? What about those who die without faith in Christ? Now, before I say this, I'm going to give you the theological, biblical perspective to the best of my ability. But understand this, that God's mercy has a play in this as well. And I say that because, as I shared last week or the week before, I know that there are those of you, I myself, I've lost friends, I've lost family members who did not believe in Jesus. And we could sink down into the throes of depression, worried about, but Lord, what about them? What about them? What about them? And the Lord would say, look, they're in my hands. I will take care of that. This message is for the living. This message is for you and for me, where we are, and those who we know where they are. Listen closely. What about those who die outside of Christ? The Bible talks about two deaths, and two resurrections, (laughs) and two births. Two deaths, two two resurrections, two births. The first first death (laughs) is physical it's the death of the body. It's what we're talking about here. It's the house of all the meet, uh, of all the living, the house of meeting, death. The physical death is the first death. The second death that the Bible talks clearly about is spiritual. It is the death of the spirit. It is the death you do not want to experience. Because that's the death that leaves you in hell. 
two deaths. A physical death, which most of people will experience, and a spiritual death, the death of the Spirit. There's two resurrections. The first resurrection is eternal. It's a resurrection to life. It began with Jesus, who Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 15.20, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ, the first fruits, was raised. And the moment Christ was raised, the gate was open. Suddenly, death no longer had power over us. If we will put our faith in Christ, we, like Him, experience the first resurrection. A wonderful resurrection. Our resurrection to life eternal. That, my friends, if you have faith in Jesus, is what you have to look forward to. If you do not, there's a second resurrection. second resurrection is a resurrection unto judgment. Because you didn't want the grace of God to cover you. Because you wanted rather instead to stand before God with your deeds and the things you've done. And you want it to be weighed based on your works and abilities. Well then the second resurrection is for you. And the Bible tells us in Revelation 20 verse 13, The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Remember I said there were two deaths? The first is physical, the second is spiritual, and that second death is into the lake of fire. And it is for all those who choose to wait for the second rather than the first resurrection. Are you with me on this? Is this clear? How do I avoid that second death of judgment? How do I avoid the second resurrection, which is to judgment and then to the lake of fire? How do I avoid these things? Simple. The Bible mentions two births. If you're sitting here this morning, you've already experienced the first one. The physical birth. But there's another birth. Jesus said in John 3, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. Truly, truly I say to you, verse 5, he says, unless one is born of water, the physical birth, and the spirit, the spiritual birth, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so the first birth, like the first death, is a physical birth. We all experience it. If you're living today, you have the first birth. And you face the first death. But the second birth is a spiritual birth. It is rebirth. It is being born again. And I've shared this quote before. Moody said it. I love this. He said, He who is born once will die twice. He who is born twice will die once. And I like to add this caveat, if at all. If at all. What do you mean if at all? I mean there's one exception to the inevitable, inexorable, unavoidable guarantee of death. There is an exception that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so we will always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 The rapture of the church. There are a people selected who have the opportunity, wonderful, the blessing of never tasting death. Who are alive at the time of His coming. Will it be us? Please, Lord. I hope so. Wouldn't that be just great? That is, to me, what Paul calls it the blessed hope. The blessed hope. And that's what we long for and look forward to. And Jesus described it. He was clear about it. I skipped over this verse so many times growing up. Never realized what He was saying. In fact, it just didn't make sense. Jesus speaking to Mary and Martha... 
As they were coming to Him and they're upset about Lazarus' death, He says in John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even if He dies. Good. That's good news. And, and Jesus says, everyone who lives and believes in Me will never die. How can you have it both ways, Lord? Well, there are those who are going to die throughout all of history, but there is going to be a moment in time where those who happen to be alive at the moment of His coming, at the rapture of the church, will never die, but be caught up. And so will always be with the Lord. Maybe you're aware of this teaching. Get it down, gang. Get it down. Explain this to people. Help them understand. This is our hope, our living hope. This is what, what we're longing for and leaning toward and, and running to. This is where our belief comes down in Christ, the resurrection. Not only of Christ, but of all those who believe in Him, whether it's a resur- resurrection from that first death or just a resurrection straight out of life. He's coming and He's calling. That's the eternal perspective. Let me give you the immediate perspective. What are we living for? What are we living for? And this one actually speaks more to how we as believers in Jesus, how anyone really walks and deals with despair, depression, despondency, difficulty, heartache, suffering, hardship, the throes of life. How do we walk it out? The immediate perspective. Go back to the book of Job, chapter 7, verse 1. Job chapter 7, verse 1. Job says, Is not man forced to labor on the earth? Are not his days like the days of a hired man? As a slave who pants for the shade, as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages, he's talking about the daily grind. So I am allotted months of vanity, and nights of trouble are appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, When shall I arise? But the night continues, and I'm continually tossing until dawn. So he's talking about the daily grind. We looked at this Wednesday. And the long nights... The sleepless nights, the anxious nights. And there are so many in our world who are living that way. From the beginning to the end of the day, just grinding through it. And then they get home for a little bit of peace, but they can't sleep. And they're anxious. And all the worries of the next day are before them. And the worries of the day before are on them. And and it just becomes this drudgery of living. This is what Job is describing here. He says in verse 5, My flesh is clothed with worms and a crust of dirt. My skin hardens and runs. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle which is a tiny little device on, on a loom that moves back and forth hyperactively very quickly. And they come to end without hope. And he says, remember that my life is but a breath. My eye will not again see good. He's speaking out of his pain. He's talking about that daily grind and nightly disquiet that plagues so many. And so, for people in that position, when the topic of death arises, it just adds to the despair. It just increases the fear. Job lacked one thing here. Job lacked the immediate perspective. He doesn't even have the eternal perspective. He's missing that too. But he also lacks the immediate perspective. Though he wonders about it, though he thinks about it, in Job 19.25, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth. After my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God. There's a moment of bright faith in that. Ah. 
For all this, I know my Redeemer lives. And I know in my flesh I'm going to see Him even after my flesh has been destroyed. What is He talking about? Resurrection. Does He get it? Does He know what He's saying? I'm not sure. But it blurts out as He's talking about His rescue. It's almost a wistful, plaintive plea. And yet there's great truth in it. If He could only grab hold of it, the immediate perspective. It's the perspective that moves me through every day and every night. It's the perspective that brings peace. It's the knowing where I'm going. I was once asked by a young adult, young man, passionate about Christian service and missions and ministry, and, and he said, you know, I've, I've heard you talk several times about the imminent return of Jesus and the rapture of the church. And he goes, that's nice. But what does that have to do? He said, it's just escapism, isn't it? What does it have to do with Christianity now? And what he was saying is, we ought to be out in the world concerned for the world and not sitting around talking about how we're going to be saved. We know we're saved, so let's let's go about the work of the Lord. Let's go about missions. Let's go about doing good deeds. Gang, the rapture of the church, the expectancy I have of Jesus' imminent return, it brings me my immediate perspective. It moves me. It compels me. It controls me. It constrains me, Paul says. What does, Rick? The love of Christ motivates my day. Here's the immediate perspective. One verse, and this is the one to know and to live by. This was Paul's, Paul's moniker, if you will. Philippians 1.21 For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There you go. In one verse, you get both the immediate and the eternal perspective. The eternal perspective, to die is gain. As we've talked about, man, if you are in Christ Jesus... You, I want to die. Please hear me correctly here. I don't have a death wish, but I want to die. What are you talking about, Rick? I can't wait to be with Jesus. Far better than where we are right now. That's my eternal perspective. To die is gain. But my immediate perspective, get this gang, my immediate perspective is to live is Christ. What are you living for? Right now, my son Corey is looking at college this fall. My daughter Hannah, same thing. And I have told them before, I said, I'll tell you again this morning. To live is Christ, not DigiPen. To live is Christ, Annalise, not Whitworth. Now for me, Hannah, not Whitworth. That is not, it's not, Paul didn't say to live is university life. That's living. A lot of people think it is. Some of you are saying to live is to accomplish what I've set out to in my business. No, it's not. It's going to kill you. (laughs) That's death. To be successful, it's going to kill you. You're going to end up in the house of all the meeting. You know, Ray, to write one more book. No, it's not. And I know that's not your perspective. I can know Ray writes books because to live is Christ. That's the immediate perspective. To live is Christ, to die is gain. In sorrow, in hardship, in heartache, in pain, to live is Christ. And listen, it is far greater, this, this perspective is far greater than bumper stickers with little crosses and doves on them. It's more than t-shirts and slogans and logos. It's far bigger than service projects like going to Haiti. Rick, are you undermining what Russ invited us to do a mission? No. You should do that, but that's not what your life is about. 
Mission work is not what your life is about. What are you saying, Rick? Good deeds. Service to the Lord here is not the bottom line why we are here. You want to hear what it is? Turn over to Philippians chapter 1. This is the last passage I want you to go to this morning. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. I want you to know, Paul says, as you're turning there, just go quick as you can. Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the Gospel. Paul is writing this letter from prison. He's in chains. Let me just ask, how many of you have been to prison? Okay, no, don't answer that. (laughs) Think about what that would be. He didn't have any freedom. He's locked up. And he's locked up because he followed Jesus. I've had that thought from time to time. What if the whole homosexuality issue, which is really burning a hole in our country, what if it became law that as a pastor I couldn't read from Romans chapter 1? What would I do? Well, our our first Bible study after that law would be Romans chapter 1, I can tell you that. So what if I ended up in jail? I don't like that idea. I like my bed and my home and my family. I'd much rather be there with Cheryl than some guy named Earl, you know? (laughs) Paul is there in prison, and he writes, I want you to know my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. How can you say that? Paul could still live as Christ. So no matter what happens to me, to live as Christ. Whatever my circumstances, he says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ, and actually the cause of was added in there, literally, so that my imprisonment in Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife. Some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Isn't that amazing? I know that would never happen in the church today, but Paul's saying there's some out there preaching their heads off for Jesus because I'm in prison and they want to take my place. They want to have the big name. Their whole motivation is to be on the speaker's circuit. And I love what Paul says. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in all this I rejoice. I don't care what your motivation is. I just want Christ proclaimed, he says. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know, verse 19, that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectations and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Do you hear what he said? There it is. The immediate perspective. Your reason for living is not to do any of the other things I mentioned. Your reason for living and mine is to exalt Christ. Period. That's it. The exaltation of Jesus Christ. Paul's primary concern above all other things, which is what then allows him to say for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I'm to live on in the flesh, oh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I don't know which to choose. 
I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's very much better. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul didn't have a death wish. He was not suicidal. He said, hey, if I live, it's fruit, man. It's good stuff. It's more people coming to Jesus. It's more opportunity for me to exalt Jesus. But if I die, I'm with Jesus. Which one do I choose? And thankfully, Paul didn't have the choice. The choice was with the Lord. And so Paul just said, whichever it's going to be. The exaltation of Jesus Christ is both eternal and immediate. Because we are here for Him. Now please understand, college students that I just mentioned, your reason for living is Him. Your reason for your profession is Him, not you. My reason for getting up this morning is Him, not me. Your reason for being here, it is Him, is the exaltation of Jesus. We get it backwards, and this is so critical. This is why so many people end up miserable, because we try to live for ourselves. Paul says, to live is Christ. And if that is your mentality, misery has a way of going away. Because I'm living for Him, whatever my circumstance God lifts me up to lift Him up because that's what I was made for. His glorification. I love this. Verse 17 of chapter 7 in Job, he says, What is man that you magnify him and that you're concerned about him? Well, that's a great question. Why does God magnify man at all? So that we will magnify Him. So He gets all the glory. That's what you're saying. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's a little kind of pompous. I know, scoot back, lightning could strike. (laughs) But there are those who look at God and go, He just wants you to worship Him. He just wants you to glorify Him. Oh, it's all about God's glory. Why would I want to worship a Creator like that? Listen to me. God knows something. In creating us to worship and glorify Him, He knows something. He's not saying, worship me, come on, worship, I need to be worshipped. That's not it. God is saying, you are here to glorify me because in glorifying me, you will find fulfillment like you cannot imagine. You will fulfill what you were created to do. The fish that swims in the water, if you put it on land, it dies, but man, you put that baby in water, it swims. Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. Finding Nemo. And so to you and I, the Spirit would say, just keep glorifying, just keep glorifying. Just keep glorifying, glorifying, glorifying. Lift Him up. That's why we exist. And by the way, (laughs) I got a Facebook comment last night from a young man. Works with Hannah at at Papa Murphy's. Very kind comment. Very nice. Um, And very embarrassing. Because what he said, he was complimenting me. And he was throwing out something uh, something about my what I do. He used the word iconic. And he meant well, and I thanked him for his kind words, but let me tell you something. All he needs to do is spend a week or two with me and he will be very, very disappointed. Listen, do you realize that in the worship and exaltation of Jesus Christ, you are never disappointed? You cannot be disappointed. 
The more you lift up Jesus, the more you realize how great He is. He, you cannot be disappointed in worshiping Jesus. I thought of it. We, we do this with people. We idolize people. And then we're so disappointed when they fall. You can idolize Jesus all you want. You will never be disappointed. Because He'll never fall. Because He is God. And so we are called up into this wonderful glorification. It is our existence. To live is Christ. Isaiah 43, chapter, uh, verse 1, The Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, says, Do not fear, I've redeemed you, I've called you by name. You're mine. And everyone who is called by my name, and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made, you're created for His glory. Colossians 1.16 And by the way, there's a debate out there. Why is man created? Well, it's, it's for salvation. No, it's not. We were not made to be saved. We were made to glorify God. Salvation is His gift. (laughs) But salvation is not the end game. His glory is the end game. His glory is the point. For by Him all things were created. Colossians 1.16 Both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. And what Job will learn in his life and death struggle is that God does not exist for Job's comfort and happiness. Job exists for God's glory. And my friends, God does not exist for you and He does not exist for me. We exist for Him. When we get it the other way around that so many in the world have done, we start saying, God, why would you do that? How could you allow? Why would, why, I, what? And it's all about me. Well, I was not created so that He could take care of me. Although He does, and He's a Father, and He's loving, and gracious, and merciful, and compassionate, and He will be there for you, and all that's true. But it's not our purpose. When I finally begin to understand this, I, I can move away from that self-centered theology and into a Christ-centered reality. And that's the final answer for Job. I exist for him. Job 42, verse 2, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. This is good news. Here's what you get to do. For Christ's sake it has been granted not only to believe in him. Are you ready for this? But to suffer for him. That's kind of weird to be excited about. Not if glorifying Jesus is my primary motive. Because if I am here to glorify Him and I suffer and it brings Him glory, praise God. Awesome! You mean me taking that hit, lifting Him up higher? Hallelujah! That's what it's about. Now listen, because I said when we began, I hinted at this. We live right now in a very unique time in the history of the world. Yesterday I went to a men's conference down at Calvary Fellowship. I, I, I wish we could have taken more of you men. It was a last minute thing that we found out about, and so there were just a couple people who grabbed tickets and went down for it. Next year we'll all go. There were four great speakers there. Uh, John Corson was one of them. Wayne Taylor spoke. Um, the fourth and final guy was Greg Laurie. And he was hysterical and awesome. And it was great. And he ripped Wayne Taylor, who's the pastor of Calvary Fellowship. You probably, <laughs> Ray, you probably know about Wayne's got a nice little podium there. 
I got to tell you this. I'm sorry. I know we're over time. I just got to tell you this. It's so funny. Greg Laurie gets up there into the day, has his notes, and he looks down. And he, he grabs a music stand and puts it over here so he can spread his notes out. And he goes, this is a chick pulpit. <laughs> no, this is like a petite pulpit. You have a chick pulpit, man. <laughs> anyway. Great speakers. Great Bible teachers. And even by your response, I can tell many of you listen to these guys. The greatest thing I heard all day came not from a single one of them, but it came from the worship leader who happened to be Wayne's son during a prayer. When he thanked God, and I wrote it down, and I want to share it with you, he thanked God. He said, Lord, thank you that we have been handpicked to live in the last days. Blew me back in my seat. I know we live in the last days. I know Jesus' coming is imminent. I know that at a moment's notice He could call and we could be done. I hadn't thought about being handpicked to live now. I may have shared with you before in the past, I, I would look back and think, I wish I could have been in the first century church. You know, that would have been cool. Walk along with Peter, his shadow falls on a sick guy and he's healed. Oh, I'd love to see that. Wouldn't it be great to live then? No. No, I would much rather live right now. At the end of all things, you have been, listen to the significance of this, you have been in the history of man handpicked by Jesus Christ to live now. And to live as Christ. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the now that you have, with the time that you have? Because He's coming. To live as Christ. You know, if that's not exciting enough for you, remember that though death is the house of all the living, there's another place being prepared for us. That Jesus said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said, Huh? That's my translation. Lord, we don't know the way you're going. We don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, Thomas, I want you to get out your smartphone and hit GPS. You want to know what our GPS is? The way to Jesus? The way to the Father? Our GPS is John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. Amen.